Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hello, <laughs> What if I were to tell you that that is a song I like to hum to myself sometimes when I'm alone? <laughs> <laughs> I would absolutely believe you because our brains are so connected. <laughs> it's such a random song, though, to have in our minds. It's probably like 100 years old. It's probably racist as fuck. Like, I just, I don't know anything about it, but I have some gut feeling that Oof. that might come from vaudeville. So if it does and it's problematic, we apologize in advance. Yes. My cultural reference point is that frog cartoon dancing around which is what makes me think it is because i think he was like a sambo type of character oh god i know it would not be surprising at all i mean that's like everything in our damn country well yeah i mean it's all racist but that one is like yeah i'm pretty sure i don't have i mean i don't want to take us completely off track by doing the research now but Possibly, but it's just like so fucking catchy, too. <laughs> it is. There's just something about the insane songs that get in your head. So, like, as a non uh, religious person, I will often sing when I'm alone um, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, <laughs> but specifically <laughs> as Judy Garland. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> So, you know, a little, little insight into my life. Oh, I'm looking glory, up the song now. Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I did a quick look up of the song, and it is, it is, it is problematic. Highly, deeply problematic. Oh, man. Yeah. And then your other one is like militaristic. I mean, are you a oh, white yeah, person like who was raised up. in the deep south or what? <laughs> I mean, it's in the Mormon hymn book. Wow. That's wild. But it's specifically Judy Garland's version is what I sing. Well, obviously. <laughs> in the same way that sometimes I will sing the Star Spangled Banner, but as Britney Spears. Oh, my gosh. Let's hear that one. Oh, I don't know. Come on. Come on. <laughs> That's normally the I'm in my car in traffic. And it's something like, oh, say, can you say? <laughs> it has that sort of vibe. I like it. And Brittany, now freed, now married. What's up, girl? And follow up from when we chatted free Brittany. Her dad is getting deposed in court. What a... It's about time. Bag of shit. Absolutely. Yeah. Ugh. And Brittany just living her life in a way that's making everybody clutch their pearls. It is an unexpected amount of <laughs> nude photos. <laughs> but who gives a shit? I know. I just don't understand like how anyone can genuinely get worked up. It's like... It was fine when she was 13 and basically a child slave working her ass off 
for her parents, but with like no agency. But now that she's actually in charge of her life. Oh my God. And like, have you never seen a body? Like, I know. I know. Who gives a shit? I mean, it's just human bodies. We're humans. (laughs) People are so weird. But I don't understand the like bouncing back and forth. I'm, (laughs) it's a podcast, so you can't see me, but (laughs) listeners, I just, I could see, you know, Kirsten's upper body movement and i immediately (laughs) knew what she was referencing from britney's instagram (laughs) i'm doing my britney instagram impression and i just i i'm not like judging it i don't care like you go girl and i just don't understand what that is and and she does it a lot is that an instagram like tiktok thing or i honestly think she created it because now it's like the parodies of her do it right and maybe it is a reference to sort of like a sorority pose mm. the bound we're, what we're talking about is the kind of bouncing back and forth with different outfits on Ugh, not Brittany. bouncing bobbing i don't know i don't know what you call it but what a treat yeah i'm totally fine if she never releases another new song but i am so desperately curious to know what an album would sound like with her in control. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, maybe she will one day. Like, you know, it just happened. She's got to still be processing it all. But yeah, I mean, I would like to. Yeah, she's creative and she's still young. I mean, she's got so much ahead of her. I, I would bet on, I mean, not like everything I own, but I would put a moderate wager on yeah, she'll she'll create more eventually. Yeah, and listener, if you're unfamiliar, just do a YouTube search of Britney Spears playing the piano with the song Every Time. And the interview, <laughs> she's like, well, she's really good at the piano and she's playing and she's like, oh, I was, you know, just playing around on the piano and I played this riff and it's like the da-da-da-da. She's like, and I really thought that was beautiful. And so I like turned it into this song. And and I was like, oh my God. She like in the same way that it happens to destroy and vilify women at all costs, like her artistry was like stripped from her fame. Yeah. And not saying she's like necessarily like a Taylor Swift or a Mariah Carey level. Mm -hmm. She's an artist too. (laughs) And it's like, yeah. I I could rant forever. But, I mean, it feels, I don't know. I mean, first of all, like, part of our premise of this whole podcast is pop culture. That's a big part of what we talk about always. But I think it has a parallel with the stories that we tell. Oftentimes, our victims, you know, are not given full voice or, you know, their their stories are not, not told in the right way. And that's what we try to do or that's what I try to do when I'm doing my part of it is just give voice to the victims or a different perspective. And, you know, that is kind of what happened to Brittany. I mean, she is a victim in her own way, not of this kind of crime, but, and now she's getting her chance, which a lot of victims don't get is in their lifetime to take back the narrative and to control it and to own it and to raise their voice. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is what I'm learning through doing the podcast with you 
the opposite side of re-examining some of the villains, mm-hmm. like thinking Menendez. Yeah. Um, our latest episode with Urjabet, the Blood Countess. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, even like Bloody Mary. There's, it's just so interesting. Yeah, totally. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, nothing is really black or white. And temperamentally, I'm a pretty black or white person. I just always have been. As a kid, I was the type of kid who would, like, take a punishment on principle, you know? Mm -hmm. But life just really isn't that way. And so many of these stories, I mean, some are clear cut, you know? But a lot of of them have lots of nuance that, you know, just people don't have the appetite for that because it requires thought and whatever yeah uh human society i i don't know should we have been like sociologists i think probably (laughs) yeah we're frustrated academics for sure the number of times that we say the phrase uh dissertation that we will never write there's something there i think (laughs) yeah maybe that's a a past life version of ourselves yeah 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 that's like i don't know me if i had a longer attention span or something Oh, girl, I wish I wish I could uh, <laughs> retrain my brain to focus again. Props to all the people who start graduate programs and stick with them. And also, you know, shout out to the rest of us who <laughs> have spent a lot of time thinking about graduate <laughs> programs. I have almost applied to graduate school so many times. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, if you can't even sustain interest through the application process, that's the universe telling you something right there. And listeners, if there are any any of you out there that are the people who get to decide who gets honorary doctorates, uh, mm. Kirsten and I are ready. Oh my God, I would be so good at being an honorary doctor. We can we can speak at the commencement. It'll be the first time there's ever been a, a duo <laughs> That would be so awesome. I mean, you're basically just writing my like hopes and dreams for the next 10 years right now. Because that's the only way I'm getting a doctorate. A hundred percent. And I don't care if it's honorary. I will be Dr. McDaniel. Oh, for sure. Oh, my gosh. That would be amazing. But also the part where we give a commencement speech together. That would be... I mean, I don't know, like honorary doctorate, giving commencement speech together. It's, it would be a tough choice if I had to pick between the two. I think it would be incredible. <laughs> and I think the administration would be shocked at how candid we were with these young people about how the world works. I know. We'd have to get special permission ahead of time to say, to swear, or to cuss, as they call it, where I come from. Uh, there's a lot of heck out there. <laughs> I saw somewhere, I think on Instagram recently, another podcast, and I can't remember who it was. If it was you and you're listening and you want the shout out, like add us and I'll I'll do it. But they do a swear jar on their show. And so they count up how many F words they say in the course of a month and then they donate a dollar for every f word to a particular charity and part of me was like that's the best idea and then part of me was like we would be broke yes (laughs) really quick the best non-swearing swearing i've ever experienced in my life was as a like 14 year old boy in mormon church (laughs) 
What? Um, where we were having this like lesson for teenage boys about why you should never masturbate. Oh my God. <laughs> and okay, it's like a room full of boys who are like laughing and it's like, the funniest shit you've ever heard yeah. like reading this pamphlet that's like literally titled for young men only and essentially it's all about your like reproductive system and it's like a little factory and sometimes the little factory overproduces and that's like why you have like wet dreams and like oh it, it was insane God. and so like we were laughing being shitty whatever and so like the church teacher <laughs> I'll do my best approximation Jiminy G's Christmas. Can't you guys just shut up for five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Jiminy G's Christmas. Wow. So the rest of my life, that is a locked in memory that resurfaces often. <laughs> Jiminy G's Christmas. I mean, I do some like that sometimes because just around my kids, although I've started tiptoeing into that territory where I'm like, it's okay if they hear a swear. And so I swear. And every day I inch one, you know, little step closer to giving actual zero fucks. So this year it's like I'm throwing away a hundred fucks at least. Hell yeah. What are we talking about this year? This this year? This week? <laughs> <laughs> Our <laughs> cases for this two-part episode are very 90s-centric. So much. And I'm looking forward to kind of taking you back, Andrew, because you were still just a little a little whippersnapper. I have so many of these memories of like the songs, the rappers themselves, like what happened, but I was so young mm-hmm. that like I just remember every yeah. that like Faith Evans was a soundtrack of my childhood. Mm-hmm. 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 And it's just like diving in to the research. Yeah. It was like pulling up so many memories and then looking at them from, you know, like a 34-year-old perspective as opposed to a 9 and 10 and 11-year-old perspective. Like, mm-hmm. just fascinating. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I mean, again, I was, you know, teenager, young 20s during the period that we're going to talk about. But there's so much to the story that I didn't know. And I mean, that's kind of a theme I'm discovering. There's a lot I don't know, which is why this is so fun, because we're learning with you. Absolutely. So today, of course, we're talking about Tupac and Biggie. And I'm going to start by talking a little bit about Tupac. Born on June 16th, 1971, in the East Harlem neighborhood of Manhattan, to Afeni Shakur, who was born Alice Faye Williams, and her husband, Lamumba Shakur. Tupac was originally named Lasan Parish Crooks, which was new information for me. I had no idea. But his name was changed when he was just about one to Tupac Amaru Shakur. And Tupac was named after the 18th century Incan revolutionary Tupac Amaru II, who fought to overthrow the Spanish colonial government in what is now Peru. So Tupac's parents had been members of the Black Panther Party since the late 1960s and were somewhat revolutionaries themselves. It was during this time in the late 60s that Afeni and 
20 other Black Panther members were charged with participating in a large conspiracy to commit murder and bomb several police targets in New York City. So pretty big deal. Um, Known in the media and now historically as the Panther 21 case. And honestly, I had never heard of the case It could be an entire separate episode, so I'm just going to kind of skim right over that um, and and touch on the high points. But Afeni and all of her co-defendants were acquitted of all charges the month before Tupac was born. And as brief as I want to be about this, I do want to note, though, that Afeni represented herself at trial. Which, you know, the common wisdom is, you know, mm. what is it? A, a person has a fool as a client if they represent themselves. Well, she was a brilliant woman. And many people credit her activism and her hard work on that case for exposing the FBI corruption that yeah, eventually cleared them all. we often think of it in terms of like, you know, the psychopath, serial killer, narcissist who thinks they're the smartest person on earth. It's, it's cool to hear about Mm -hmm. someone actually doing it and winning and making change. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And just a little tidbit about it is when they were all arrested, they made the bond on each of them $100,000 each, which totals to whatever 21 times 100,000 is. I Right. So just a shit ton of money. So the Black Panther organization made the decision to raise the money for just her and one other person to be released because they knew that if they could get her and this other person back out, they together could raise the rest of the money to get all of them out. So she was a very powerful, very smart person in her own right. So after her acquittal, Athene chose not to return to the Panthers And her marriage to Lumumba came to an abrupt end not too long afterward. It somehow came to light that Lumumba was not Tupac's biological father. Instead, Tupac was the product of an affair between Afeni and a man named Billy Garland, who was another Panther member who she had worked with during her time with the organization. In 1975, Afeni married Matulu Shakur, who was no relation to Lumumba, and they had a daughter, Tupac's half-sister, Sikiwa. During this period, Afeni worked as a paralegal, and the family lived in New York City. So I couldn't find anything on her educational background, but she took what she learned from her own case, and she parlayed it into work as a paralegal. So again, just a really smart, self-made person. At some point, though, the family fortunes changed. Afeni descended into an addiction to crack, and her marriage to Matulu fell apart. Which also FBI, the U.S. government, purposefully targeting people of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I was doing this research, I kept thinking, this could be an episode. This could be an episode. Like, there's so many pieces that I'm just really glossing over for the sake of time. But absolutely, and it's not the first time that crack comes up in in my part of this. Yeah, and listener, if that's new information to you, Google it about mm-hmm. the U.S. government literally trying to destroy black neighborhoods and get people addicted to drugs. Right. And, I mean, again, I keep saying how I'm going to not dwell on that Panther 21 case, but I keep going back to it. 
But part of why it was, they were acquitted is because they proved that the FBI had agents who were planted within the organization who essentially entrapped them and participated in encouraging these conspiracies. Ugh. Yes. So talking about the government going in and trying to destroy black communities and black organizations, you know, the, the Black Panthers were seen as a very big threat to the government and the status quo, um, the status quo being white supremacy. So, Which also is part of why California has a lot of the gun legislation it does was because the Black Panther Party started arming themselves and the white people said, okay, well, we can sacrifice guns if it means the black people can't have them. Right, right. Yeah, the right to bear arms unless you're black. Or brown. Sorry for all the tangents. Or Arab or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So a lot here that we're kind of, you know, just touching on that we could dig deeper into. So after her marriage fell apart, Efeni, Tupac, and Sakiwa relocated to Baltimore in 1984. So around the time that Tupac would have been about 12, 13, still young, really impressionable. And this time was reportedly really hard for the family for obvious reasons. Divorce, relocation, and Efeni's addiction continued in Baltimore. She struggled to hold down a steady job, and they were on welfare for a time. It was also during this time, though, that Tupac discovered his love for the arts. So in 10th grade, he auditioned for and was admitted to the Baltimore School for the Arts, which is one of the top five arts high schools in the entire country. Oh, wow. Yeah. And while he was there, he studied acting, poetry, jazz, and ballet. And he was reportedly drawn to Shakespeare, and he acted in several Shakespeare plays. And he reported later that he found the timeless themes in those plays reflected in modern-day gang life. In 1988, the family relocated again, this time to Northern California, which, again, new information, new information. When I knew, you know, I thought of him as a West Coast rapper, obviously, Mm -hmm. and I knew that he spent a lot of time in L.A., so I just kind of assumed that when the family relocated, it was to Southern California. But it was actually to Northern California in the Bay Area, and they moved to a place called Marin City, So they moved to this area, but Efeni still struggled with addiction, and her relationship with Tupac became really fraught during this time. Of course, you know, he's now an older teen. Mm -hmm. And in 1989, Tupac dropped out of school in the Bay Area. He left home, and he moved back to the East Coast, back to New York City. Soon after returning to New York, Tupac was recording under the stage name MC New York, He was taking poetry classes, and he even had landed a manager pretty quickly after he arrived there. His name was Atron Gregory. Now, if you were a teenager in the late 80s and early 90s, like yours truly, you know Gregory's work, even if you don't know his name. Gregory was also the manager of a little Oakland-based band called Digital Underground, who exploded into the mainstream in 1990 with their number one hit, The Humpty Dance, which Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I mean, I think to this day, if you're American, you know this song, even if you don't know that you know it. Everyone has heard this song, hugely famous. And around that time was literally everywhere. You could not <laughs> escape this song, for better or worse. And the lead singer, you know, Humpty was like kind of a you know, media sensation there for a while with his fake nose thing and whatever. So that year, Gregory set Tupac up as a roadie and backup dancer on the Digital Underground's national tour. And pretty literally, a star was born. I'm not going to go too much into Tupac's career because Andrew's going to talk a lot about that. But it didn't take very long. Tupac's talent was really obvious, and he went from strength to strength, making friends nearly everywhere he went. His collaboration with Digital Underground led to his debut album in 1991. That same year, he tapped back into his love of acting, making his film debut with a cameo in Nothing But Trouble. And I think it's around this time that his goals kind of coalesced. He wanted to be both a top rap artist and performer, mm -hmm. as well as an actor, writer, producer. So like his mother, he was incredibly intelligent and introspective, and he began spending more time in L.A. working to make his multi-hyphenate dreams a reality. Yeah. It was there in L.A. in 1993 that Tupac met Christopher George Latour Wallace also known as Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G., or simply Biggie to his friends. Wallace was born on May 21st, 1972, and at just shy of a year younger than Tupac, he had been a fan of his for a long time, and when he was in L.A., he asked a mutual friend to introduce them. Like Tupac, Wallace hailed from New York City, Brooklyn, to be more precise. He was the only child of Valletta Wallace, who was a preschool teacher, and Selwyn George Latour, who was a welder and politician. Both of his parents were Jamaican immigrants who settled in the Bedford-Stuyvesant, a.k.a. Bed-Stuy, neighborhood. Wallace's parents separated when he was just two years old, and after that, Valletta became the lone parent and the lone breadwinner. She often worked two jobs to support the family. Now, he was raised Catholic, and so Wallace began his education in parochial schools in New York. And he was a good student. In middle school, he won awards for his writing and his English performance. He later reported, though, that it was around this time in middle school, about the age of 12, that he began dealing drugs. He was already known to his friends as Biggie by this time because of his size. But there was a struggle within him, you know, a pull between crime and easy money and kind of the life that he saw on the streets while mm -hmm. his mom was working so hard to provide for them and his natural talent and the allure of performing. Yeah. So he began rapping under the stage name MCC West and he performed on street corners and with other local groups. In high school, Biggie transferred at his own request from the Catholic school he was attending to George Westinghouse Career and Technical Education High School, which was in downtown Brooklyn. I couldn't find any reason why he kind of wanted to change, 
But while he was there, he was classmates with Trevor George Smith Jr., a.k.a. Busta Rhymes, and Sean Corey Carter, who is now known as Jay-Z. When I read that in my research, I was like, what? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So I don't know if it was the location in downtown Brooklyn. His former school had been in Fort Green, the Fort Green area, which was a little bit away. Or kind of he knew that there were some up-and-coming rappers there and he kind of wanted to be in the mix. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't really know. But in any case, in 1989, Biggie dropped out of high school and he was pulled more deeply into crime at that time. So I'm, I'm kind of kind of glossing over details and trying to stick to just what's really relevant. But over the next several years, he was arrested and convicted of a weapons charge some drug charges in North Carolina, specifically selling crack. And he spent the better part of that year in jail. Mm -hmm. When he was released, he recorded a demo tape using the name Biggie Smalls, which eventually landed in the hands of Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy or Puffy or P. Diddy. And at that time, Puffy was still with Uptown Records. This was Biggie's real kind of flashbang moment career-wise. And again, Andrew will dive deeper into that part later. But just know this is kind of when things coalesced for him. Mm -hmm. And just reading between the lines in my research, I think that Tupac and Biggie were temperamentally a little different. I think Tupac was really driven while Biggie was a little bit more, he was talented and he had ambition, particularly to make money, but he didn't have quite that drive that Tupac had. Mm-hmm. But 1993 was a really pivotal year in many ways for Biggie. So at the age of 21, he became a father for the first time with his former long term girlfriend, Jan Jackson. He assumed his third and official stage name, the Notorious B.I.G. Biggie Smalls was already taken in the professional realm. So even though he was kind of known by that name, you know, in his personal in his personal life, that was not available professionally. And as I alluded to earlier, it was that year that he met fast friend Tupac Shakur while he was on a promotional tour in L.A. Although the two were different in many ways, some of them really obvious, like Tupac was initially known for his politically tinged and really introspective lyrics, while Biggie was firmly in the gangster rap genre with a focus on crime and drugs and sex and Mm -hmm. kind of all the things we associate with gangster rap. They also had many similarities. Both men were highly intelligent as well as street smart. Both had strong, smart mothers who at times struggled under the weight of their own really difficult circumstances and upbringings. Both also had connections to the street and dabbled in low-level crime. Both worked to kind of pay it forward by helping younger up-and-coming artists, even though they themselves were still, you know, really young and kind of new to their own success. And maybe because of these things, or maybe for reasons that will only ever be known to the two of them, they hit it off immediately. And like I said, became really fast friends. 
they kept in close touch by phone or, you know, what was really popular back then, pagers, beepers. And they also visited each other when they were traveling. Um, mm-hmm. But they also made trips intentionally to see one another just to kind of catch up. I think each considered the other a confidant and guide. But Tupac took more of a kind of mentor, big brother stance. He was, you know, about a year older, but also had been in the business for just a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. In late 1994, though, things began to change between them. So again, really kind of have to move quickly over some time periods that have a lot of information. And this is a part that we're going to kind of skip over, but could be its own (laughs) entire episode. In 1993, though, their story takes a little bit of a turn. It was around that time that Tupac was charged and eventually tried and convicted of sexual assault. We take sexual assault very seriously here. It's something we talk about a lot, but um, I just want to stay to the the beats that lead to Tupac's death. Mm-hmm. So he was accused of assault. He's embroiled in kind of this legal um, process now. And he's still able to travel back and forth because, again, he's very famous at this time, has mm-hmm. a lot of money. So he has posted bail, and he's kind of moving freely, still conducting his his work and his business. In late 1994, in November, Tupac is on the East Coast. He's in New York, and he's recording verses for a mixtape. Now, he's there ostensibly because he needs money to relieve some of the pressure. Now, you know, he started famous and very wealthy and still probably fairly wealthy, but you know, the legal expenses are adding up. So while he's there, a music manager reaches out to him and offers him an opportunity to drop by a studio, Quad Studios, and record a verse for a performer that he repped, some, you know, not Mm -hmm. widely known performer. And it just so happened that Biggie was recording at the studio at that same time. Tupac reportedly wasn't thrilled about the gig. Again, like, you know, in the rap world to to um, lend a rhyme to someone else's track is kind of giving them credibility or mm-hmm. you're, you're vouching for them in a way. And from what I can tell, he didn't really know this artist or have any kind of personal connection, but he needed the money. Yeah. And so this music manager offered him $7,000 to come by and contribute And I mean, I'm just guessing, but probably what would have been an hour, a couple of hours of work. Yeah. So even though he wasn't really into it, um, he agreed to do it. And the upside, he would get to see Biggie, who was, again, recording in the studio at that same time. So that night, Tupac and a group of friends went to Times Square, where the studio was. And while they were waiting for the elevator, so they walk in, they go through the lobby, they're waiting for the elevator, a group of three masked men rob them at gunpoint and, you know, take their jewelry. And, of course, they're, you know, wearing lots of gold, chains. I think Tupac had a Rolex. And Tupac resisted. Um, I, I don't think to kind of save the jewelry, but just, you know, tried to fight back. Mm-hmm. And one of the armed gunmen shot him. So he was rushed to the hospital, obviously, and underwent surgery right away. While he was at the hospital, his mother came, friends, 
And notably, Biggie went by, you know, so Biggie had been in the studio when this went down, um, was shocked as everyone was, and also went to the hospital to visit. Mm-hmm. Almost immediately, though, Tupac began to suspect the robbery had been a setup. His mind goes to try to figure out who would or even could have set him up, right? Mm-hmm. Only so many people knew he was going to be at the Quad Studio that night. And the list wasn't very long, and of course it included Biggie himself. So Tupac checks out of the hospital really soon after the surgery. I've read in some places as soon as just a couple of hours after the surgery, obviously against doctor's guidance. And quietly, he moved to the home of actress Jasmine Guy, who he had met while guest starring on her show, A Different World. So again, if you're young and you don't know who this is, look her up. If you were alive and watching TV during the late 80s and early 90s, (laughs) you know exactly who I'm talking about. The next day, Tupac insisted on appearing in court to hear the verdict in his assault trial. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, again, we're not going into the details of this case, but the jury acquitted him on charges of forcible sodomy and some weapons charges, but he was convicted of forcible groping charges. So sexual assault and the detail was groping against someone's will without consent. And he was sentenced to a range. His sentence was a range. I think it's like 18 months, but to a max of four years in prison. Mm Mm-hmm. And he began serving time on Rikers Island, still recuperating. So in the infirmary, uh, recuperating from his injuries from the shooting. Yeah. So while he was in prison, Tupac had even more time now, right, to ponder who may have set him up. And, you know, I think it's worth noting here that During this time, he was also kind of forcibly detoxing from weed and alcohol, which were a big part of his lifestyle up to this point. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he began reading again. So again, super smart guy, read a lot in school. But then as his career took off, that kind of went to the wayside as he partied and then also just worked. He worked a lot. And while he was in prison, he started reading specifically some military strategy. So he read The Prince by Machiavelli and The Art of War by Sun Tzu and, of course, other things. But these were things that he referred to later. Mm -hmm. In what was probably the final nail in the coffin of Tupac and Biggie's friendship, a few months into Tupac's prison term, Biggie released a song called Who Shot Ya? Which, you know... I think fairly maybe Tupac took to be a taunt and a diss track, essentially confirming that he and Puffy had orchestrated the robbery. Mm-hmm. In 1995, Tupac shared this theory with Vibe magazine and it got back to Biggie. From that point on, the friendship was over. And what had been up to that point, a mostly, and I say, I emphasizing mostly because there's a lot more to this story and again possibly a whole other episode so not entirely but mostly an artistic business rivalry it became crystallized in the media as the east coast west coast hip-hop rivalry or sometimes even war yeah now marion aka suge knight of west coast based death row records 
seized upon this moment and really saw Tupac's earning potential. And so he used his own money or his company's money to secure Tupac's release on October 12th, 1995. And he did that by paying Tupac's $1.4 million bond. And he flies to New York. He takes a limo to the, to the prison and picks Tupac up. And very quickly after that, Tupac signs to Death Row Records. And then, of course, the battle lines are drawn. Yeah. It's West Coast Death Row Records, Suge Knight, and East Coast Bad Boy Records with Diddy. Incidentally, in 2011, convicted murderer Dexter Isaac confessed that he was the gunman in the Quad Studio shooting and that he was hired by the music manager who had invited Tupac to the studio that night. But he never implicated Puffy or Biggie in that crime. Yeah, I have thoughts, but that that's for our speculation at the end. Yeah. So that's October 1995. From there on out, it's kind of diss tracks, trash talk, public feud. There were shootings by other people in, in their orbits. And Tupac grows closer and closer to Suge Knight, who was is like a confirmed baddie um Mm -hmm. gangster all kinds of connections with different different bad dealings on the west coast um another could be entire multiple episodes is the whole rampart scandal with the lapd and we'll kind of dip into that but he's knee deep in so much Uh bad shit happening in LA during this time and Suge was associated with the Crips gang um, in LA so if you know about the Crips blood kind of gang rivalry war in LA he was affiliated with the Crips um, deeply entwined people in his record company were members of the Crips or related to members he had members who served on his security team just kind of lots of interconnections there. So yeah. this is what Tupac is moving into. So on the night of September 13th, 1996, Tupac and Suge are in Las Vegas, and they're there to see the Tyson fight. And they are there with his current girlfriend, Kidada Jones, who is the daughter of Quincy Jones. And he has one bodyguard at this time. And he's staying at the Luxor. And that night they go to the fight, which I believe was at the MGM Grand. And when they're coming out of the fight, he and his group, which included a man named Trayvon Lane, who was known as Trey, were coming out. And Trey was part of the Crips, the Southside Crips, so in Compton now. And they see across the lobby a man named Orlando Anderson, who was purportedly part of the Bloods Mm -hmm. and who reportedly, again, a couple of weeks earlier, had confronted Trey at a mall or something and tried to take his death row medallion. So anytime someone joined death row records, they got a medallion, a special medallion. Uh tried to take this medallion from him. And so there was kind of a kerfuffle as like super 
middle-aged white lady way (laughs) to say that they had a confrontation. And so as they're coming out of the fight, they recognize across the lobby Orlando Jones as one of the people who was involved in trying to take Trey's medallion. So they all run over and Tupac leads the way and he punches Anderson. And then the whole like crew jumps on him um, really starts giving him a huge beat down. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, sometime later, Suge is finally convicted and I think goes to prison for the first time in his life for landing a kick on Orlando Anderson and was mm-hmm. caught on surveillance. So at that time, Tupac's bodyguard steps in and he's worried now that Tupac is going to get arrested. So he takes Tupac and kind of ushers him away and gets him away from the fight, away from the crowd, and takes him back to his hotel room. And he was staying at the Luxor, um, Las Vegas. So they head over to the Luxor. Kidada is there. And the plan now is Tupac is going to change, and then they're going to head to Club 662, which was owned by Suge Knight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these parts now are kind of up for debate you know it's reported from different people different sources but according to the bodyguard at this time Kidada was was asked to stay at the hotel I think you know Tupac knew that he was in some kind of danger um, and felt like maybe at this club there would be exposure and wanted her to stay at the hotel to be safe so mm-hmm. she stays at the hotel the bodyguard and Tupac are heading out to go to the club. They're heading down to the car. And at this point, the bodyguard says that Tupac asked him to take Kidada's car while he would go with Suge Knight and Suge's car. And so, again, according to the bodyguard, he kind of resisted this. He wanted to be with him. I mean, I think it's not protocol for bodyguards. Yeah. You know, I don't know. But Tupac insisted So now they're in their cars, they're in the caravan. It's about 11 o'clock at night, and Tupac and Suge were stopped. They were pulled over by bike patrol for having their car stereo too loud Mm -hmm. and for not having license plates on the car. So they find the plates are in the trunk, and they turn down the radio and whatever, and so they're, they're kind of released to go on to the club. At about... 11:10 they stop at a red light and they're in front of the Maxim Hotel and a car with two women pulls up along the left side of the car and Tupac was talking through the window to them they exchanged words and reportedly invited the women to follow them to the club mm-hmm. then at 11:15 that night They're driving um, along on their way to the club, and a white four-door late model Cadillac pulls up next to the car on Suge's side of the car. So Tupac is driving, Suge is in the passenger seat, and the shooter, who was seated in the back of the Cadillac, rolled down the window and started firing from a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson Glock 22. Tupac was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. And one of the bullets lodged in his lung. Suge was hit in the head by fragments, so he wasn't Mm -hmm. directly hit. The bodyguard, who again had been behind, 
stopped, jumped out, you know, and at this point it's, you know, the Cadillac peels away and now it's chaos. Yeah. So in their kind of convoy, they had an additional person who was driving behind the car that had the bodyguard in it. Mm-hmm. And after the assault, that person followed the the shooters and tried to follow them, but lost them after a block or two. The police come. It's kind of a chaotic scene. They alert paramedics over the radio. And the paramedics take Suge and Tupac to the the hospital there. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, on his way into the hospital, Tupac said to the paramedics that he was dying. So gravely, gravely injured. Yeah. He was sedated and he was placed on life support and eventually he was put into an induced coma because he was trying to get out of bed. So again, this, you know, as he had the first time where he checked himself out very quickly, Kidada came to the hospital and visited him and he reportedly regained a little bit of consciousness, but he was in, you know, very bad shape, obviously. Mm-hmm. They put protect- a protective duty on him because again, they still don't know who has shot him, what the threat to him is. So in spite of the tremendous care in the critical care unit that he had been receiving, six days after the shooting, Tupac died from his injuries. And officially, the cause of death was cardiac arrest, but obviously brought on by, by the shooting. Yeah. Now, after this happened, you know, speculation is wild about what happened I think within a lot of the law enforcement community, it was seen as an obvious gang bang, essentially. Yeah. And kind of chalked up to gang activity. And investigators in Las Vegas looked looked deeply into the case for many, many years. But according to records, people who were present, witnesses, just would not talk. And it makes sense. It does make sense, particularly, again, referring back to Suge Knight and his reputation and the connections and, you know, the way that he lived. I mean, he was a scary fucking dude. Yeah. And so that that case, I, I think, within not very long period of time, just completely went go- went cold. There were a lot of people who thought that Biggie was involved, that this was an East Coast, West Coast thing. But there just wasn't evidence to support it. And, you know, particularly because they could not get anyone who had any information at all of any kind on either side to talk. Yeah. So then we move forward a little bit in time. And about six months later, Biggie is in L.A. And this is a big deal because, again, the East Coast West Coast rivalry is in full effect and mm-hmm. like more gnarly than ever, right? So now it's it's actually a war. It's also kind of the 90s in LA, which was just a very tumultuous, violent, corrupt time. Yeah. So from what I can gather from reports at the time for Biggie and P. Diddy to even go to L.A. was 
seen as like a very ballsy move. Mm -hmm. And they came out to attend the 11th annual Soul Train Music Awards, um, or at least the after parties for the awards. And the after party that they went to on the evening of March 9th, 1997, was at the Peterson Automotive Museum on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. And, you know, reports, again, in this case, are very chaotic. Some witnesses gave statements, but a lot of the statements conflict. Essentially, the sequence of events is Biggie and and Puff Daddy were in the party, having a good time, and it was shut down by police for overcrowding at around 1230 that morning. And they left to basically return to the hotel. Mm-hmm. By 1245 or quarter of one, they had left the party. They're out on the street, but the streets are really crowded. There are a lot of people leaving this party and it's L.A., So the first truck that has Biggie in it is stopped at a red light just like 50 yards from where they had just been. Mm -hmm. And in an eerie similarity um, to Tupac's case, a car, a black Chevy Impala, pulls up alongside Biggie's um, Suburban. And the Impala is reportedly driven by a black man dressed in a suit and with a bow tie. Mm -hmm. And the man rolls down his window and he fires from a nine millimeter blue steel pistol into Biggie's car. Now, four bullets hit Biggie and his entourage drives him immediately to Cedar sinai So doctors performed emergency surgery, but his wounds were so severe that he was pronounced dead at 1.15 that morning. Mm. So just 30 minutes after the attack. Yeah. Now, later it was revealed that even though he was shot four times, it was only the final shot that was fatal. So those are the crimes. Now... There's so much to these investigations that, again, I mean, we could do deep dive into the investigations. And there were multiple for Biggie, for Tupac. Were they connected? Was this retaliation for Tupac's murder? Even if Biggie wasn't involved in Tupac's murder, could this be retaliation by people who thought that he was? Was it something else entirely? And so there are lots of theories about this. Yeah. And again, the L.A. Police Department during this time, still under investigation by the Justice Department, still highly corrupt. And so there is an investigation. I believe the original investigation was handled by the Wilshire Division. So, you know, in L.A., I think a lot of people know this, but there's kind of the elite homicide division, which is called... um, Robbery homicide now, I think, is the current name or major crimes. It's changed a couple of times over Mm -hmm. the years. But that unit was not brought into this case until maybe a year after the crime, which there was understandably a huge outcry from all corners that this made no sense, you know? Yeah, Um, totally. 
Biggie's a huge celebrity, any other celebrity would be investigated in a certain kind of way. And that didn't happen. And and it's not to say that the department that did investigate was not um, capable. You know, I think that these investigators face the same kind of brick wall in terms of witnesses say nothing. But in this case, they did have a pretty good witness account of what the shooter looked like. And they had sketches, but the case went cold. Robbery, homicide, or the more elite kind of homicide investigative unit was brought in about a year or don't don't hold me to that number but they were brought in sometime later maybe six months later and this is when the corruption related to the rampart scandal kind of began to unravel yeah again this is a whole episode unto itself but there was an investigator whose name is russell Poole who began investigating and began to kind of uncover some of this corruption. But kind of here and there, there was a bank robbery. There was a shooting. There was an officer-involved shooting. There was, And he kept seeing some connections. So this officer, oh, yeah, he, moonli- he moonlighted for death row records. Mm-hmm. Oh, that one, he moonlighted for death row records. And so he's seeing a pattern here. And later, this investigator came out and basically said that the chief of police at the time was kind of tying his hands and preventing him from investigating this kind of internal corruption. Uh-huh. Eventually, the corruption comes out. Um, he files, I think, like a 40 or 50 page report. It turns into what now is known as the Rampart scandal. And it seems like there is deep involvement of the LAPD in Biggie's murder, either actively or in covering something up. The question, though, is, is there a connection between the two? And again, this investigator, Russell Poole, felt very strongly that there was. And so his kind of working theory was that Suge Knight owed Tupac a lot of money in, um, what are they called? Residuals. Uh Uh-huh. Right. And his earnings from the work they were doing together. And he didn't want to pay it. He also recognized that, um, again, according to the theory, I can't be inside Shug's head, um, that there's a certain kind of currency to the work of a deceased artist, right? Mm Mm-hmm. At the time that Tupac was killed, again, you're going to get into this, but he had a lot of work that was in the can but not released. A lot. It's a lot easier to swindle an estate uh, than it is a live person, especially one as savvy as Tupac. So Poole's kind of theory is that Suge either owes Tupac a lot of money or knows that he's going to be paying a lot to Tupac for the work that they've done and he would really just rather have all of it himself and so he orders a professional hit on Tupac essentially then he you know feeds off of the publicity and all the posthumous fame that Tupac has after his murder he feeds into this kind of east coast west coast war concept because it lines his pockets Mm -hmm. and then a year later he has a hit taken out on Biggie, ostensibly in retaliation, but then also that kind of undermines the strength of his biggest competition. Yeah. 
So that's Poole's kind of working theory. And there are a lot of connections. So Orlando Anderson's uncle was someone known as Keefe D. And Keefe D was connected with Suge Knight's organization. So Orlando, who's supposed to be a blood, but Suge Knight, who's associated with Crips and how, you know, they're connected. So there's like some weird overlap there. Mm -hmm. So again, just lots of intricate details about gang life and really these organizations, you know, call them what you want, terrorist organizations, um, gang organizations. I mean, as every bit as kind of organized and sophisticated as any kind of mafia that we talk about in other cases, um, and every bit as violent. And so about... 10 years later, a task force was put together to investigate Biggie's case specifically again. Mm -hmm. Um, What had happened is at that time, Biggie's mother, Valletta, had filed a civil suit against the Los Angeles Police Department, essentially for not taking her son's crime seriously and not, you know, not putting the full weight of the department behind it. And so at that time, a task force was put together to look into it again. It was an interagency task force with members from um, the county sheriff's department, different police departments. So Compton, Los Angeles, um, I think there was someone from the FBI. So a lot of different organizations and they uncovered a lot of new information. They made connections with the Fruit of Islam sect and the witness, the eyewitness accounts of this man wearing a suit and a bow tie, which some members of different Islamic organizations are known known to do. And so a lot of these kind of connections were unearthed at this time, but still no charges have ever been filed in either case. Yeah. So it's just, it's such a hard one. And, and we've talked about some like this in the past where because it was so mishandled from the beginning, kind of on both sides, you know, I mean, you definitely don't want to victim blame, but there was a wall of silence around these Mm -hmm. cases where information that may have helped the police was withheld. But then also, you know, real evidence of corruption and systemic racism and how the case was handled, how both cases were handled on the investigative side. Totally. And so to a certain extent, I think it falls into that category of some of this stuff may now be unknowable. I mean, these cases are, you know, 25-ish. Both are under 30 years old, so we're not going so far back in time that everyone is dead, but a lot of the players are dead. And, you know, evidence is gone, all kinds of things. So it's, it's a really hard one. I think to take a look at and try to dissect and say, well, this person definitely did it because there are a lot of theories that could be true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those. Damn. So my personal Occam's razor, Mm -hmm. no proof of anything. Yeah. But just how I imagine it to go. Mm -hmm. I feel like the, unless there's interpersonal and unknown motives I just don't see a reason for Biggie or Diddy to rob Tupac. Yeah. As opposed to some shitty producer, 
some other low level person like I feel like the stars were already so high like I mm-hmm. I just don't see who that helps totally and then totally and I think up until that point at least in Biggie's mind Tupac may have been suffering under the influence of some people that I think were trying to kind of put a wedge between them. But I think from Biggie's perspective, they were still tight at that point. Yeah. So then fast forwarding to the Tupac's murder, I think it's simple West Coast gangs mm-hmm. make the most sense. It it seems just, I'd love to know why the theory about Suge and I get like crime boss, but like would you really put a hit on someone to shoot into the car that you are sitting in? <laughs> That's a big question mark. That is a big question mark, especially when he could have probably very easily arranged to be in a different car. Mm-hmm. You know, not that he would have not been with him that night, but that he wouldn't have been in that vehicle. The one thing, though, that came out in both investigations, but particularly kind of was there was a lot made of it later is that car that pulled between them so at the time that car they claimed to just be like confused and didn't know where they were going right but Mm -hmm. investigators you know didn't think that totally added up especially the task force so the task force was tasked with solving biggie's case but they were digging into anything that might be related, including Tupac's case. Yeah, totally. And when they went back and looked at that, they're, they are thinking, this looks a lot like a diversion car, which feels a lot more like a professional hit than it does a gangbang kind of hit. And if we look at Biggie's, that is kind of the more traditional, air quotes, kind of drive-by scenario where mm-hmm. a car pulls up aside and shoots into it as opposed to a diversion, a blockade, and then an ambush, kind of, which has a much more, like, military kind of feel. So I think that was part of what had people thinking that way. The other thing is there were rumors. So it's it's not only this idea that maybe he owed Tupac money or he wanted more, a bigger cut of future earnings, which would be easier if Tupac was dead, But there were also some rumors at the time that Tupac might be considering going out on his own and creating his own record label. And that to me seems very probable because, again, he was a really smart guy and had this kind of activist upbringing. And so I can see giving, you know, 70% of his income to Sugar or anyone else kind of chafing And we saw that, I mean, this has some little echoes back to the Sam Cooke case, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that Sam was up to was, you know, fighting for equity in the music business. And and that theme is still relevant. And so that is another kind of piece of this is that the idea of that may have tipped the scales and made him much more likely to do it but then also need the cover of not an alibi but the cover story of like why would I hire somebody to shoot into a vehicle I'm in yeah I mean it's not impossible it just seems not worth the risk like yeah I think all the motive could absolutely be real I think he's probably would have been capable (laughs) Mm -hmm. but like 
I, I think that risk to his own life, you would really have to trust that gunman. Yeah, yeah. So I like I think all of the pieces of the puzzle still fit, and maybe he could even plan a different hit, and it just so happens that another person killed him first. And then I definitely think Biggie was a direct response to Tupac. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows who did it, mm-hmm. but like... The flames had been so high, and I mean, I'll get into it some, but it's like a, a cash cow, that mm-hmm. war. Yeah, yeah and, totally. And um, I think there could be a million people that could have killed him, but I, mm-hmm. I do think it is directly connected to Tupac's death. I mean, I just don't see how it couldn't be. When you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras, it seems like it would be pretty surprising if it were not yeah yeah well damn i know it's a lot it's a lot but for me the takeaway is there's so much complexity here there's so much i didn't know and there's so many parts of this that i think are worth kind of a deeper dive into just as someone who's interested in human nature but also crime you know we say it a bunch but this could absolutely be its own series Yes, a thousand percent. Mm. And I think that it's underreported. I mean, in some ways, no, and you'll talk about that. But in terms of uh, treating it as like a important, serious crime, you know, I mean, they were treated as, oh, gangbangers. Like, I mean, you know, we've all heard these like disgusting, vile sayings like, oh, they take out their own trash kind of thing. And it's just repulsive. Yeah. And then knowing the corruption in the LAPD in general to this day, let alone that specific level of corruption. Right. And and like I knew about general LAPD corruption. But again, I mean, I don't know where I've been living, but I didn't know specifically about the Rampart kind of scandal, the Rampart case as a whole and the specifics of that. And they're oh, my God so much well the cops probably did a lot to make sure that wasn't common knowledge i'm like yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was a big story but like there's a lot of media often takes what police say as fact which yeah totally media is totally complicit in it for sure i every step of the way with this the school shooting in texas it's like every single thing the cops said was a lie and mm-hmm. that happens every time <laughs> like, right And I think it's important to know, you know, when I talk about, you know, witnesses wouldn't talk, I mean, part of it is a disdain and and a sense of wanting to settle their own scores. But where does that come from? I mean, that comes from the understanding of the black community who knows that police were originally established as slave patrol. And it's coming out of this, like, very racist history of our country, you know. And they would have no reason whatsoever to trust police or to feel that police in any given situation would be there to help them. And saying that, I mean, it's also important. We talked about being very black and white and a lot of what we talk about is not black and white. You know, there are good cops out there, right? I mean, I know some. I think most people know some. Some people are related to some. 
And I think Russell Poole is a good example. He was such a dog with a bone. He wanted to get to the truth wherever that led. And I think it was on the table that Tupac may have been killed by police officers who were working for Death Row Records. I mean, you know, I think anything is on the table. Mm -hmm. And he wanted that truth. And it didn't make him very popular. And he ended up leaving the, the police kind of early because he didn't want to work in that system. So I think it's important to say, you know, we talk a lot about corruption and bad police and there are there are good cops out there. And, you know, we are victim centered. And in talking about this case, I think it's really clear. I mean, not only Biggie and Tupac in some ways kind of never had a chance, but part of the reason I went into their family histories is to see, you know, we're talking intergenerational trauma, intergenerational oppression. Mm -hmm. And it's sad when anyone dies. But when we look at these cases and look at the talent and the intelligence that they had, that their moms had, and what their families might have been capable of if they weren't starting from way down here. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, important to say both sides. Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, totally. So next week, we'll take a deep dive into the pop culture they created, they inspired, and then that was made about them. I cannot wait. Oh, my gosh. Talk about huge ripples. It's like waves. Very, very much so. (sighs) Can't wait. Well, listeners, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Abso-fucking-lutely. Head over to Apple Podcast and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production.